Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. From Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is the fun-sized version of Postmortem AMA, where you can ask me anything. And asking your questions of me is none other than that Joe Russo. Joe, how are you? Oh, I love hearing that. That Joe Russo. I'm great, Mick. How are you? Uh, never better. Thank you. Uh, by the way, happy anniversary. Uh, uh, Thank you. It's well, been a season of anniversaries for projects and personally as well. So thank you. Yeah, I guess, I guess, uh, you know, the, the 82, 87, uh, 92, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's all, it's all big stuff for Mick Garris. Uh, yeah. anyway, uh, well, so we've got lots of questions. We've got some, some, uh, some really good ones from our fans and it'll be fun to get back into them because it'll be, uh, you know, we, we, we kind of pivoted into a different format the last few weeks, but yeah, now we're, we're back to random. Yeah. Random classic AMA. You're, are you ready? <laughs> I am ready if you are. All right, let's do it. So first up, we got TD Perro who asks, having been a singer in a band, will we ever catch you singing in your car? Uh, well, that's the only place I do it in the car, in the shower, but, uh, you'll probably not catch me. I'll try to smoke my windows so you can't see me. <laughs> well, there you go. So you're not going to be singing Mick, seeing Mick singing at the top of his lungs, driving down Ventura. So yeah, it happens, but usually on the freeway. All right. There you go. Stuart asks, what was the process like being interviewed by Abby Bernstein for your wonderful and expansive biography <laughs> oh i think it's a bargain 25 bucks for a book like that that's a deal yeah it's, it's a it's a tome <laughs> yeah uh it was kind of amazing you know abby had asked me numerous times if i would be willing to uh for her to write a biography of me and we've been friends uh, for many years many years and uh i always said nobody's gonna want a book about me and so after years of asking me, she said, okay, if I can find a publisher, would you agree to sit down to a series of interviews with me about your career? And damn, if she didn't find a publisher. So um, it was really great. You know, she's an old friend, so it was easy. She knew a lot about my life, both professionally and personally, and uh, had really researched everything and I had, had encouraged me to find all of these photos that I hadn't seen in decades and all of that stuff. So it was really fun because it was also a trip back in time for me too, to re-experience professional, mostly professional things that, uh, that I had done, but also some personal stuff too. And, and uh, it was a chance to become introspective and, and share some stories and, and revisit some things that I had not thought about in decades. And, and I thought she did an amazing job doing a book on someone nobody would be interested in. Oh, that's not true. I think that book sold quite well. And, and uh, I have to say, um, Abby's made my job a lot easier because she did force you <laughs> to dig that stuff up it's it's much easier to uh to to dig back into stuff for this podcast so i thank her uh, yes, not just for the you, book abby. but for making my job on postmortem a little easier <laughs> thank you abby <laughs> and thank you joe 
All right. Well, digging back into the past, Blair asks, how did Mick come to meet and be hired by Jerry Harvey? Uh, what are his memories of him? Looking back on your career, what did you learn most from the Z Channel employment that you could not have learned anywhere else? Well, let me correct one fact. Jerry Harvey did not hire me, although he became the program director of the Z Channel. Uh, the original program director was a guy named Hal Kaufman, a really terrific guy who took a gamble and did it. Um, Jerry kind of undermined Hal and became, after having worked for Hal, he kind of pushed him out of his seat and he became a very knowledgeable program director for the Z Channel and turned it into a real home art house as well as a place where you could watch box office hits. It was the first pay TV channel in LA, but Jerry actually ended my show. He didn't begin it, um, never told me that he was canceling the show. Uh, and not too long after that, um, it was quite a big news story here in Los Angeles, but he killed himself and his wife, uh, shot wow. both of them to death. And I don't know why, but it was a rather horrifying and shocking end to his tenure at the Z Channel. That's that is that is a, a horrifying tragedy. Um, and had you you had left the Z Channel by the time that had happened, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Like I said, he had canceled yeah. the show. He never told me he canceled the show, but I would keep calling and asking when are we recording the next episodes, and never get a returned call. So 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 really truly. Uh, your Z Channel show still is on the air. <laughs> well, it ain't on the air, but uh, uh, fair, fair enough. Uh, well, you can see those old shows, by the way, on Mick Garris interviews. Uh, there's a drop down for for the vintage stuff, uh, both the postmortem TV shows, yeah. the episodes that survive off of Betamax tapes of the Z Channel shows that we did, and those are all available you know, on demand, no signups, no. Yep. And there's some really cool stuff there too. Like, uh, like a young Steven Spielberg. Um, yes. Yeah. So. We got some pretty amazing people on the show. Yes, you did. Uh, Christopher Lee is on the show. That, that, that alone, uh, postmortemers is worth the trip to Mick Garris interviews alone. <laughs> <laughs> Dust 10 thrills, like the number 10 Dust 10 thrills asks, which project of yours was the most difficult to translate from script to screen? Well, by far the most difficult thing I've ever done is the stand. Uh, not because it was difficult to translate it because Stephen King did the script himself and, but it was a hundred days shoot, uh, six states, 95 speaking roles, 91 scripted locations, not necessarily we went to that many locations, but uh, there would be multiple sites in a particular area. Uh, just the vastness, the scope of it, the budget we had to work with, it was massive. It was worth it. You know, it was something not only for me personally as a, a filmmaker doing new things I'd never done before, but it was my Fitzcarraldo. It was pushing a boat up a mountain for a hundred yeah. days uh, and never slid down the other side. But it became a huge success. It led to other work for me uh, with Stephen King. Um, but it was hugely difficult. Mostly we were outside 
and the weather, most of what we shot was in Utah and the weather in Utah changes constantly. So it might be written for a sunny day and you'd turn it into a, uh, a rainstorm. Um, you just had to keep rolling with the punches, but roll we did and we came in on time, on budget and became a hugely successful miniseries. One that uh, it still seems like Ben Stiller regrets not being a part of. To this uh, <laughs> I don't know if he regrets it, but it, it would have been great to have him in there. He would have been terrific. Yeah. He, he genuinely seemed to uh, be a little bummed that he missed out on that role. But but at least that's what I gleaned from uh, our podcast with Ben Stiller. We had Ben Stiller on, everybody. You should listen yeah. to it. Uh, it was a great one. Mick did a wonderful job on it. So well, uh, Ben made it easy. He's a great storyteller. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Bobby asks, and, and this is an old song, but uh, one that that's, you know, I, we're always happy to answer. As an indie filmmaker, I'm looking for any tips or suggestions on just getting started in the industry. Well, the best way is writing uh, because it costs you nothing but imagination uh, and ability. Uh, you can put things on a page that you don't have to collaborate with other people doing. It's something that's entirely of your own device. And for me anyway, I was a writer first. I'd been writing since I was 12 years old, writing short stories and things like that, writing for school newspapers, um, doing interviews and learning as much as I could about people I was interested in, the crafts I was interested, that sort of thing. But when I was a young, hopeful filmmaker, we didn't have the tools that are in your pocket every day. Uh, you know, when Steven Soderbergh can shoot a movie on an iPhone 7 yeah. uh, and make a movie that is of a high enough quality, it can go in theaters, well, so can you. The, your only limits are the talents of the people you surround yourself with. You can make something beautiful for virtually nothing. Um, if you have a good script, a good cast, a good cameraman, all of those things, you know, it depends on talent. So for me as a first step, because it's the way I did it, the only way I can really advise is through writing. And to be able to get your writing to the right people, you have to be able to do it through an agent. And so what you need to do is create something that no one else but you could have created, something that stands stands on its own that's not like, oh, this is good for a film student, but this right. is good for a professional script. Because you're not right. competing with other beginners, you're competing with other professionals. Yeah, I saw a tweet the other day that got a lot of uh, back and forth that was someone essentially said, you know, go out and make your movie, like no excuses, blah, 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 blah. But like, I think, I think you bring up a really good point, which is like, yes, you can go make a movie right now and, and more cheaply and, and technologically uh, more savvier than anything that you could have done when you were starting out. But if you don't have like the basic storytelling fundamentals, you're not going to be able to put those tools to use in a meaningful way. Uh, so I, I think, I think, you know, writing and reading scripts and, and really immersing yourself in, in storytelling while experimenting with that technology is is the way to probably craft like a truly meaningfully good independent film. And, you know, surround yourself, meet people who yeah. have, share your interests. You know, there are so many people 
I mean, I live in Los Angeles. I was born in Los Angeles. So uh, the industry surrounds me. Yeah. But there are so many people who are interested in film. Film studies didn't used to be a thing. You, you had it at UCLA and USC and virtually nowhere else. And yeah. you may be on the East Coast. But um, now there's not a college or university that doesn't have a sophisticated film program. Yeah. There are just people out there, all of social media is filled with people who are interested in and passionate about film and meet talented people who share your interests. You know, if you're not great at cinematography, meet someone who is. Don't shoot your own film if you know that's one of your shortcomings. Right. Um, if your best friends are not the best actors, don't ask them to star in your short film, nice. but seek them out. Go to a film school, ask a theater class, who are your best people who would be interested in this? You know, yeah. they're out there. There have never been more people interested in pursuing the arts than there are right now. And finding like-minded people, especially with social media and the like, makes it e easier than it's ever been. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of, almost every major city in the country uh, has chapters of like independent film groups and such. And a lot of them do like, for example, 48 hour film challenges where yeah, those are great. They, they give you a prompt and they, and you have to go make a movie like literally from writing to completion in 48 hours. And I think it's a really great way to kind of just like, see if you like it, meet some people that you can make movies with, um, you know, test to see test different ideas out you know i mean it's, it's not you know i think there's a lot of people who like probably spend too much time making 48 hour film challenges that <laughs> never make anything else but as, as a way to get as a launch pad to get started it's it's a really good muscle to flex i i did one uh back in 2008 i believe and uh you know it was it, it really works your muscles and you really you really find out a lot of things about yourself as a filmmaker. And that's really kind of the point. Yeah, you learn a lot. And, you know, writing is an entirely solitary activity mm. and filmmaking is an entirely social uh, and uh, your ability to communicate is uh, extremely important on a set with other people to convey what your vision, what your point of view is, your cinematic vision for your film. So those are two ways of doing it, by making a movie or by writing. Yep. Uh, Ian asks, are there any films you watch before you start production on a new project? Do you have any uh, inspirational movies that you return to before you dive in? Not really. You know, I'm always watching films and usually new films. I don't watch a lot of films over and over. I've, I'm not as big a repeat film viewer because films and tastes are always changing. So are the techniques and, and uh, tools of filmmaking. Those are constantly changing. And I, and I just love movies, old, new, or, or in between. And the, any good movie inspires me. And, you know, who would have thought if I were prepping for a film a year ago, I would never have seen uh, everything everywhere all at once and see what could be done in the world of filmmaking. That's yeah. not necessarily a kind of film that I would make, but maybe it would inspire some new creative ideas on how to tell a story. Right. So it's constantly in a state of creative flux. And, and although there are things that 
I find that I do thematically or cinematically, you know, I'm always wanting to expand upon that. There you have it. I think that's a great answer. <laughs> no, I do. I really do. I mean, uh, you know, I think I think you said it perfectly by, you know, everything everywhere all at once is a game changing movie. And, you know, the more new movies you consume, the more new ideas you can basically employ in your own work. Yeah, so, when a movie ex- inspires you, that's an exciting moment. No, it's 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 a smart answer. Uh, you know, more more so than uh, me returning to some of my own favorite, you know, John Carpenter movies right before production. <laughs> <laughs> but there's something to that too. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. Learn, learn from the masters. Learn from the masters. Uh, Vince Niederman asks, "How does a director know when they found the right location for a movie?" Well, I think it becomes glaringly obvious to you um, if you do find the right location. Sometimes what's scripted or what's in your head could never possibly correlate to what's available to you for the price, the budget, for the the schedule, um, and just the complexity of the shoot. Yeah. But there's nothing more exciting than going to the Overlook Hotel, the, the Stanley Hotel uh, in Colorado, when... The studio is sending you to to Canada to scout up there for locations to shoot The Shining. And I insisted on stopping at the Stanley that inspired it, walking into that place like, how on earth would we shoot this anywhere else and why? Yeah. And we ended up doing that. In the case of The Stand, a lot of the locations, because it was so complex and such a long shoot, I couldn't visit every location before we got there because of the geographical complexity of it. And I would sometimes have to choose from photographs and video. And then the first time I would see it would be on the day of shooting. We'd be there and ready to go. And usually the pictures would be enough, but sometimes you'd show up and go, oh, the traffic is one way here, or oh, this building blocks the sunlight at a certain time of day and and we're shooting in darkness that we have to light or something like that. But it becomes pretty evident if you're able to actually scout the locations um, and you have a really good location manager and you've been able to communicate what the scene needs and why, um, a good location manager is precious like a good head of any department when you're making a film but they know the stuff and you just have to be able to communicate what it is you're looking for and what the movie needs yeah i mean unless you can build a set i think there's almost no way to really truly capture probably exactly what's on the page because even even if you wrote the you know even if you have access to the same exact venue that you wrote in your script you might find that you know airlines travel over it all the time and yeah. it's, it's for audio or yeah. you know there's not enough power to light the scene the way you want it to there's there's a lot of real practical uh logistical things that go into finding locations that can be a real bummer and um, you can see locations you fall in love with but the owner yeah. won't rent them out because right and the, another really important point is that a lot of people get burned when they rent their house out to a production oh yeah and a production leaves it in a shambles leaves a hole in the wall or mm-hmm. or paint uh, splattered around uh, you know 
my my method is to always leave a place better than when you got there. Yeah. Because good neighborhood, you know, being a good neighbor, even if you're working there as a filmmaker, is incredibly important because people talk and they say, oh, the director of this movie really fucked up my house or my bar or whatever, you know, that's a really important thing is to let them know that you're going to be as careful of it as they are, if not more so. Yeah. I I think the other thing too, to consider is sometimes the owner of the location might find the contents to be objectionable and they don't <laughs> yes. want to let you uh photograph in there i mean i i can think of uh when we were slaughtering children in a catholic church and ryuhei Mora's <laughs> machete in nightmare cinema yeah uh it was very we we could not find we couldn't get arrested in a catholic church uh so so we had to improvise we've had we had a mortuary uh that we used for part of it and then we also got really lucky and we were able to shoot in the church from John Carpenter's uh, The Fog. The Church of uh, the Ascension, yeah. Yes, yes. And uh, which I believe was like Methodist maybe? or Episcopal. 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 There you go. And they were, they were a little bit more lax with us. Uh, Father Michael was incredibly generous and helpful yes, to us. Yes. And, and to mix point, you know, we, we threw a lot of blood around that church and we scrubbed it and scrubbed it and scrubbed it before we left. Uh, so... You know, I'm sure there's probably still a couple blood splatters here and there, but uh, I just we tried, hope we our, didn't we tried leave, our best. I hope we sure. didn't leave any regret in our wake. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So, yeah, so there's there's a lot that goes into picking locations more so than just, uh, you know, ooh, this looks exactly like I had in my head. Um, all right. <clears throat> Mike asks, with the Internet giving just about anyone the ability to call themselves a film critic how much (laughs) stock do you both put into the myriad of scores and reviews available especially around the discourse on your own movies well you know it's easy to say oh i don't pay attention to reviews but you know there are levels to reviews Uh, there are the dudes just sitting and and talking you know uh about their opinions and the like and then there are the ones that are influential that actually get quoted in ads and people pay attention to them because they're highfalutin critics but we work in a genre that is is not very respected and so a lot of the uh blue collar reviews are meaningful because that's how you spread the word you know uh I, I'd be lying if I said that I don't feel bad reviews. I mean, they, they can sting, but all you can do is do your best work and put it out there in a way that people will be willing to accept it or eager to accept it. But, you know, you remember the bad ones, like my favorite bad review, the most poetic was of, of Psycho 4, when a critic said, Director Garris is to Hitchcock what Peoria is to Paris. So yeah. that was that was one that uh, I enjoyed. But- I uh, I had a similarly uh, fun one when uh, you know they 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 trashed Hard Kill. Uh, they, they they said this movie feels like it was written by an algorithm. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> Joe Algorithm Russo. <laughs> That's right. Well, there's there's a lot of steps between what I wrote and what's on the screen, but yeah. uh, you know, but critics. No, you know, yeah. I, I pay attention. I don't read. 
or listen to uh, very many review podcasts or, or read online reviews that much. It's mostly in publications or, or, or programs that I, I am interested in. Um, but I, I rarely pay attention to review shows. Yeah, I, I, I look, I look at the tomato meter. I think everybody does because it's just an easy you know, way to lump everything together and kind of see where the, the majority is. But I also kind of remember that like, you know, when you're only painting things in thumbs up and thumbs down, which the tomato meter does, there's a lot of shades of gray on, on both sides of the equation. Sometimes, you know, a, a rotten movie actually could be pretty good. You know, and a, oh, and a yeah. fresh movie can be pretty bad. Uh, so it's, you know, I, I take it with a little bit with a grain of salt. Um, and it's subjective. It's not yeah. objective. You know, right. it's all a matter of taste. And if you're talking about our genre, the horror genre, mm -hmm. mainstream critics don't understand it. They don't like it. They don't respect it. They think right. it's icky. And right. so it's very difficult to get a good review. And often... The good reviews of genre films in the mainstream press are rarely on point. You know, I often will see uh, a genre movie get good reviews from mainstream newspapers and, and the like and go, whoa, how many horror movies have they seen that? Yeah, yeah. Well, they, and that's and that's the thing, too. It's like, I mean, even using Hard Kill, I know I poked fun at it before, but like using Hard Kill as an example, the fans who watch that particular type of direct-to-video action movie actually rate hard kill pretty highly in that late stage bruce willis oeuvre uh <laughs> yeah but, well but, it but, wasn't it number one on netflix for a while it was number two on netflix okay. and it was like it topped a bunch of different vod charts and uh yeah i mean it's financially it was very successful and it has its fans which you know i'm not going to talk anyone out of liking that movie if they like the movie you know but but uh um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, but yeah, but that goes to show you that like, there was a real disconnect between the highfalutin critics and, and the, the, the critics who are, you know, fans first, right? Yeah. Um, the, the people I pay attention to are my friends who I, I know what their tastes are, um, whether we agree or not people yes. uh, who are like-minded in the yes. kinds of movies they like, those are the ones that I pay the most attention to. Yeah, I mean, you know, Mick, Mick, Mick and I uh, text each other about new movies that we've seen and, and what we like and what we don't like, you know? So I think you're right. I think less less so the critics and what they're saying and more so about uh, the jury of our peers. I think, uh, you know, we, we know a lot of filmmakers and filmmakers tend to know what goes into making a movie good, genre agnostically. Uh, and, <laughs> and uh, you know, I, I, think, I think it tends to... Uh, those those tend to be the opinions that I, I value the most when seeking out movies and, and when kind of evaluating the work that I've done. Um, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And again, all we can do as filmmakers is do the best work we're capable of doing. And then it goes out to the audience and the audience is splintered into ticket buying patrons and people who see it for free and review it for a living. And, and a critic's job is to entertain you, not just guide you, not just say movie good or movie bad. Uh, it's to tell you in an entertaining way, mm -hmm. like using things like uh, Garris is to Hitchcock what Peoria is to Paris, <laughs> you know, that made me laugh. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, and, and honestly, the, the, the hard kill algorithm thing made me laugh too, because I know that 
the process of writing and making that movie was absolutely insane. And and some <laughs> someday, you know, we'll we can dig into it more because it was really wild. But but um, you know, the, but the critics the critics don't have that a experience or or you know really deep dive understanding of like what went into making a movie. Uh, so so sometimes when it is so black and white as thumbs up and thumbs down. Um, you know, I think you can also, you can almost withstand the, uh, the negativity a little bit more because you know that they just don't have the perspective to really well, know why something went wrong or why something didn't. And, you know? and not to drag this out too long for one question, but the, the fact is critics have not maintained their importance uh, mm-hmm. because it's become so fractured through social media, the, the way we consume our content that there isn't a specific film critic who speaks to the masses like Siskel and Ebert did, like Paul right. Kale did. Right. There really aren't their contemporaries here where you see a, vo- a trusted voice in the critical realm. It's a great point. It's a great point, Mick. Uh, our final question, Chad writes, you and Joe often speak about supporting smaller indie and or original movies. Where I live, though, it's a crapshoot if they show up at nearby theaters. How can I let my theaters around me know I'd like to see more than just the big releases other than telling disinterested theater workers? (laughs) Yeah, well, that's a problem because if you're talking about theater chains, they know what's going to play best in their neighborhoods and the like. And maybe you do have to see them you know, streaming on VOD. A lot of them, independent movies are day and date. But um, I would try to talk to the manager of those theaters. You know, we have a friend who manages a theater in Houston, outside of Houston, uh, who has a lot to do with what they book, our friend Damir, um, what they book into that theater. You know, he sees there's an independent movie coming. It's not just what the corporation assigns him to run there. He will book it there. And the, the people I just met a couple of weeks ago at uh, Panic Fest, um, Adam owns the theater that it took place in, a classic theater there. He books movies he wants to see, and he's Google gobble one of us. And uh, so I think it's not just talking to the people who sell you the popcorn, but talking to the manager. I think they have latitude even when they're part of a chain. And honestly, truly, voting with your dollar is the most effective way. Like any, any small movie that does come your way do your best to go out of your way to support it and try to support it on opening weekend because and bring that, your friends yeah. and bring your friends because honestly that is the because if the if the studios see that they need to make more of those movies then there will be more movies for these theater owners and theater managers to try to book uh so there, there's a little bit of it's a little goes both ways it's yes you have to you have to make sure that they're programming these movies but we also have to make sure that there is uh we'll show up yeah, the, well, that the content is there uh, and that you show up when it is there. Yeah, um, because, so. you know, the point of any business and the film business is indeed a business is to make money. And right. if they are going to show an A24 movie or a neon movie or something like that, they need to know 
that they're going to make a profit from it other than it being a loss leader for them because there are way too many loss leaders in in movies today yeah and and especially right now when the movie industry is still just recovering i mean yes everything everywhere all at once is is a great movie and it's been platformed out beautifully and it's it's making money and its audience is growing which is wonderful but for every everything everywhere all at once you have uh the the Nicolas Cage movie which underperformed you have the Northman which underperformed you have Michael Bay's Ambulance which underperformed so you know it's like we we it's like you know we can have we can't have one be successful and then have three four more original movies fall on their face yeah. you know it's it's got to be a, the average has to get a little bit better if we want to see more movies like that. yeah if we don't want to be restricted to just Marvel movies we need to support the ones that they take a chance on exactly. So on that uh, hopeful note, go see movies, everyone. Hey, go to the movies. Go, go to go the movies. Indeed. Wear your masks if you feel you need to. Go see movies. Okay. Uh, Mick, thank you so much for another AMA. It was fun to get back into uh, our, 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 our randomly generated questions. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we'll be calling out for more uh, soon. Absolutely, Joe. Thank you. And thanks to the audience. And again, if you're enjoying the show, please give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast. And Joe, let everybody know how they can get their questions to us. You can send your questions to us or, you know, just say hi uh, at Nick Garris PM on Twitter and Instagram, or you can find me at Joe Russo tweets on Twitter and at Joe Russo Graham on Instagram. Always a good time, Joe. Thank you. And thanks, everybody. Thank you, Mick. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.